Chapter Twelve of Roman Color Detective by Grace and Harold Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Twelve. Captain Bill Devon picked up his leisure coat, brushed it, and put it on. He thought Mary Joe had sounded very sincere when she said she'd be glad to have him join her mother, dad, and herself at the festival dinner. Bill smiled when he recalled how casual Tim had been about Mary Joe. Tim had said that he would have to eat dinner early and be out on the festival grounds, and he suggested that Bill call and ask to take her. Was Tim trying to be Dan Cupid, or had he merely felt sorry for him? Either way, it was a good deal. With a final jerk at his tie, a forefinger flick at a speck of dust on his coat lapel, and another brush at his black wavy hair, he was ready to go. When he drove into the Linton driveway, he looked to the right and left at the shrubbery near the highway. It was dense, tight, and high. He could see that it had made a perfect hiding place for the person who involved him in Blake's murder. Just in time, Bill, Mary Jo said as she answered his knock. Come right in. We'll be ready in a few minutes. Yellow sure is her color, Bill thought as he followed her into the hall. The yellow linen dress she was wearing was perfect, with her dark hair and eyes and her lovely tanned arms. She smiled and added, Come into the library. You're just in time for family rosary. We usually say it immediately after dinner, but when we're going out, we do it before. You'll join us? Oh, sure. A guy never knows when he'll need a few extra points. The tables were filled when the three Lentons and Bill reached the auditorium. They went inside, and John Linton's eyes swept the room from wall to wall, corner to corner. We'd better wait here near the entrance for Frank and Peggy, he said to his wife. Yes, I imagine the Stones would enjoy it more sitting with us. We'll have to wait for the next table anyway, Mother, Mary Jo spoke up. The places are all taken now. My, the food smells good. Bill watched with interest how quickly the committee handled the large crowd. He marveled at the deftness with which the men in their white aprons and caps served the food, hot from the kitchen, where the altar society members worked to keep the plates filled. As soon as part of a table was empty, Young women of the sodality cleared away the dishes and set new places. It wasn't long before the stones arrived. Peggy Stone, tall and slim, was dressed smartly in a black and white print, accented with red accessories, expensive red kid sandals, a red straw clutch with matching straw bag. She forced a smile when introduced to Bill. She lacked the gracious friendliness of Mrs. Linton, he thought. Frank Stone's eyes never left his wife careful to catch the slightest whim, which she indicated with her starry eyes or a pucker of her pretty small mouth. Bill thought there was also a lack of cordiality in Stone's voice when he said, Glad to see you again, Captain Devon. Why was everyone acting as if he carried the plague? John manages to get me to church once a year, even though it is only to a dinner in the basement, Stone said. I guess I'm one of those individuals so wrapped up in myself, looking after my personal comforts, that I never find time to think about eternal life or my soul. Right, John? Not exactly, Linton said thoughtfully. A man wrapped up in himself makes a pretty small package. I say you are anything but that, Frank. While they walked toward a table with room at one end for the six of them, Bill heard Peggy Stone say, I was telling Frank today that I wish we had a swimming pool of our own. We have plenty of room for one at the back adjoining the garden. John Linton chuckled. Get half what you wish for, Peggy, and you'll double your trouble. They took their places at the table, the Lintons and Bill on one side, 
the stones on the other. Mrs. Stone had a way of talking almost inaudibly and in vague half-sentences, which was hard to follow. As she addressed the whole of her conversation to Mr. and Mrs. Linton, Bill gave all his attention to Mary Joe, which to his way of thinking had his compensations. Once he heard Stone say, There's too much laxity in Sheriff Benteen's office anyway, and at another time, I got the police to post a cop out here tonight, John, to keep an eye on you. You're pretty much out in the open at that booth, and if the killer is a maniac. In the general noise and confusion, Bill heard nothing more of what Stone said. He thought it poor taste to dwell on the murder so much, knowing how it had upset Mrs. Linton. It was a good dinner of fried chicken, mashed potatoes, peas, and carrots, assorted home canned relishes and preserves, hot rolls, butter, homemade cake, ice cream, and coffee. After they had eaten, they all went outside where twilight, like blue smoke, had sifted onto the festival grounds. The Lintons went to their respective booths to help with the work of the evening. The Stones made a tour of the midway, and Bill was left to put in his time as he saw fit. He had told Mary Joe he would stay through the evening and drive them home. Within a few minutes, the lights on the midway were turned on, and all the qualities of reality disappeared. Instantly it became a dazzling bit of fairyland, with all its beauty, animation, and color. Then slowly reality returned. The lights seemed less brilliant, and the scars on the wooden countertops, the chip paint, and the dust on the bunting became visible. Bill saw the policeman, a tall, well-built young man, whom Frank Stone had mentioned at the dinner table. He was moving slowly, easily, in and out, through the crowd in front of the country store. Father Kearney saw him, too, and knew why he was there, but felt little ease of mind because of it. He's too young, Father Kearney thought. He'll spend his time strutting about, looking at the pretty girls. Look at the young dandy now, arching his back and throwing out his chest while he talks to Mary Martha O'Brien. Now, if they'd only sent an older man, a man with a sense of responsibility, John might get the protection he needs. Father Kearney seated himself in a chair beside the baked goods booth, directly across from the country store. The freshly baked bread, pies, and cakes gave off a pleasant aroma. He could smell the spiciness of the apple pies and tarts. He nodded, smiled, and talked to different persons, as the crowd moved slowly along in front of the country store, where John Linton, in a farmer's straw hat, was joshing and exhorting the people to stop and look over the items on display. Linton stood to one side of the booth, out of the flow of traffic, near an upended barrel, the top of which was covered with crackers. His good-natured banter brought in many customers. Father Tim walked by, grinned at Father Kearney, and glanced at John Linton. He had hoped the presence of the policeman on the grounds would ease his pastor's mind, but he could see it hadn't. It was a wonderful thing, he thought, the love that existed between those two men. He moved on to feel the air of careless merriment in the crowd, larger and gayer than that of the first evening. There was an exuberance about a finale which an opening, however fresh and new, lacked. A thin, flashily dressed young man moved quickly through the crowd toward Father Tim. You Father Devon? Yes, can I do something for you? The young man shook his head. Then he handed Father Tim an envelope. Lippy Santos sent this to you. He left as quickly as he had come. Father Tim took the envelope, extracted a check for $25. By the light from the dart-throwing booth, he read the note which accompanied the check. Dear Father Devon, there's no string attached to this, and it's not rubber. Just a little offering for your festival fund. Think of me sometimes when you say your prayers. Respectfully, Jules Santos. 
Father Tim looked from the note to the check, dumbfounded. Yes, he would remember Santos in his prayers, and he'd make a point to run out to see him sometimes. With a sudden flash of anger, Father Tim thought of Tedford Wilson. Joel Santos had written, No String Attached. After circling the grounds, Bill Devon decided to give his injured leg a rest and walk to the parking lot to sit in his car for a while. He'd come back in a half hour or so and see if Mary Jo would be free to go for a ride. He lay back against the soft cushion of the car seat, relaxed completely. Having come early, his car was in the front row of the parking lot, a good place from which to see the blinking lights of Galton. The night's peace magnified the distant sounds. Bill listened to the buzzing of countless night things coming up from the creek in the valley below. For the past two hours he had been singularly carefree and happy. It had been pleasant respite from the stress of the past few days. The general atmosphere of wholesome fun which pervaded a parish festival had helped him to forget a bit. For a long time he sat there, feeling the closeness of the church and what it meant to him. Past, present, and future were all suspended in a cloudy solution at this time for Bill. He tried to extract the future, wondering what it would hold for him. The familiar heaviness that had been with him all afternoon in the prosecutor's office settled in his chest again, and his heart hammered against his ribs to prove it had been no dream. He knew he really was in a bad spot. He could see the prosecutor's knowing smile, that irritating smile that would not rub off. Bill shook his head and looked out across the sky. The stars burned clear and there was no wind. Tomorrow would be another fine day. He looked idly at the clock on the dashboard. It was ten minutes to nine. He reached into his coat pocket for a pack of cigarettes and put one to his mouth and lighted it. Just as he tossed the burned match on the ground, he saw the flash and heard the report of a gun from out on the hillside in front of him. He threw open the car door, hurriedly got out, disregarding the pain in his knee, and stumbled toward the spot from which the flash had come. He hobbled along painfully through the tall, slippery grass and in and around the confusion of low bushes and scrub trees at the crest of the hill. For an instant he saw the receding form of a man disappear among the trees as he ran toward the creek. He tried to move faster, but his knee gave way, and he stumbled and fell. The pain in his knee burned through him, causing him to moan softly as he slowly got to his feet. He knew he was incapable of further pursuit, so he turned around and started to climb toward the lights on the festival grounds. Breathing heavily, Father Kearney was the first to reach the side of John Linton bleeding and unconscious on the ground beside the cracker barrel. The blood, bright red in the light from the booth, kept increasing its stain on his white shirt front as Father Kearney begged the gathering crowd to find Dr. Davidson. He was here a minute ago and went off toward the school, someone in the crowd said. Father Kearney knelt beside John Linton, pronouncing the Latin words of final absolution of the church as he raised his right arm to make the sign of the cross. Looking up, Father Kearney saw Art Kessler in the crowd. Send for an ambulance, Art, and please get someone to run over to the house for my oil stock. With a quick movement, he extracted a clean handkerchief from his pocket, folded it, and bent over to place it on the wound in Linton's chest. When Kessler returned, Father Kearney administered the short form of the sacrament of extreme unction. He would read the complete form of the last rites of the hospital, or on the way when he went with him in the ambulance, he thought, as he raised his hand again, to give him the apostolic blessing. Just as he finished the prayers, he felt the gentle pressure of Dr. Davison's shoulder as he crouched beside John Linton. 
with competent deftness. The doctor's fingers inspected the wound. We'll have to get him to the hospital as quickly as possible. Mary Jo, busy in her booth, heard the shot and saw the crowd converging on the country store. Bewildered and frightened, she stooped under the counter and ran with the crowd. All during the day and evening she had had an uneasy feeling that whoever had murdered Mr. Blake would try again to murder her father. She dashed forward frantically, elbowing people out of her way. When she caught up with Father Tim, also running to the center of the crowd, she asked, "'What's happened? What was that shot?' He turned. "'I don't know.' Then he slowed down to a rapid walk as the crowd separated for him to pass through. Mary Jo followed. When he reached the inner circle and saw the doctor kneeling beside John Linton, Father Tim turned to Mary Jo. She looked ready to faint. Taking her firmly by the arm, he led her out of the crowd. "'Let's get out of here.' "'Is my father dead?' The words came heavily through her sobs. "'I don't think so.' Then he reached into the candy booth and pulled out a chair. "'Wait here a minute, and I'll find out what I can.' Mary just slumped into the chair, every nerve in her body gone slack. A large woman, too old and too heavy to fight her way into the crowd, stepped over and laid her hand around Mary Jo's shoulder. "'There now, dearie, there now.' The comfort of the soft, warm arm seeped into Mary Jo. She punched the tears from her eyes with her fists. After several minutes, she looked up at the woman. "'Is he dead?' "'I don't think so, dearie. You just sit back and take it easy now. Father Devin will be here in a minute. Here, he's coming now.' Father Tim met her eyes, which begged for good news. He fought to keep his face calm, the excitement from his eyes. He's not dead, Mary Jo. Thank God, she murmured softly. Dr. Davidson is with him, and they've sent for an ambulance to take him to the hospital. To the questioning look of the large woman, Father Tim said, Her father, John Linton, was shot. The woman stroked Mary Jo's hair. There now, dearie, everything will be all right. Mary Jo fought to control herself. She must not let herself go completely. She must get to her mother before anyone else told her the news. Bill Devlin struggled, half-crouching, up the hill toward the lights from the festival. It was a gentle slope, but with the pain from his knee burning its way into his spine, it was all he could do to remain on his feet. A beam of light struck him in the eyes, blinding him. From out of the darkness came the sharp command, Stand where you are. Put your hands up. Bill winced as he tried to straighten his back and raise his arms. Quick footsteps came toward him. Where's the gun, bud? Bill made no reply. He saw it was the policeman who had been on the grounds that evening. Tense, filled with fear, Bill stood still. Now they would think it was he who had fired the shot. He stepped into another mess. Had the shot been fired at someone on the festival grounds? He looked up the slope and saw he was directly in back of the country store booth where John Linton worked. Had the shot been fired at Linton? Had he been killed? The pain flashed up his leg, almost causing him to fall. Where's the gun? I haven't any gun, Bill replied. He knew the policeman didn't believe him, and wouldn't believe him, if he explained how he happened to be here. But he had to tell him. He couldn't let him think he had fired that shot. With great effort, on account of the pain in his leg, Bill told him how he had seen the flash, and how he had run toward it. Oh, yeah? Who are you? 
Bill Devon, Captain Bill Devon of the... You, the officer cut in. Look, officer, the guy that fired the shot ran that way. Bill pointed toward the creek. I tried to chase him in my leg. Oh, yeah, the policeman cut in as he stepped quickly behind Bill, poked him in the back with his revolver, and said, Let's go. No funny stuff now. Bill limped painfully toward the lights and through the gathering crowd of people. At the top of the slope, Bill stopped, unable to take another step. His right leg throbbed with pain. He looked around for something to sit on, but the policeman prodded him in the back. Keep moving. Bill took another step and fell to the ground. He heard a murmur run through the crowd. Something had happened. Was it Linton? Bill lay there helpless, his hair disarranged, the knees of his trousers stained by the earth and grass. What's wrong? Father's tim voice, low, rounded and filled with sympathy, reached him. Bill turned his head and looked over his shoulder into the eyes of his brother, who was bending over him. Bill nodded toward the policeman. That character thinks I fired a gun down there in the brush. John Linton has been shot, Father Tim said softly. For a moment Bill was completely unnerved. So that was it. Because he'd been down near where the shot had been fired, everyone would think he had shot Mr. Linton. Is it serious? Bill asked. Yes, they're waiting for the ambulance now to take him to the hospital. Father Tim glanced at the policeman, and thought he looked like a man who knew he had a job to do, but hated it. Bill sat up and put his right hand to the side of his knee, as if to ease the pain. I'll have to take you in, the policeman said. A defensive anger welled within Bill. Why? You were the only one down there on the hill who could have fired the shot. They'll decide down at the station whether to book you or not. Bill winced inwardly. He looked away from the officer into Father Tim's eyes, full of concern, yet unafraid. Father Tim turned to the policeman. Let's help him over to the rectory. He has a neat injury, wounded in Korea. The officer nodded and slipped his revolver into its holster, put his hands under Bill's arms, and raised him to his feet. With their help, Bill started to walk to the rectory to await the arrival of a police cruiser to take him to jail. It was a long, painful walk. He looked into the future and dreaded the slow progress that would be made when the wheels of the law got moving. There'd be hours, long hours, alone in a cell, lawyers, talks about his defense, talk, talk, talk. And where would it lead to in the end? The penitentiary? He seemed caught in a whirlpool of despair so terrifying that he let out a low, moaning sound. Father Tim looked at him sharply. You all right? Yeah, I'm okay. From far down the highway came the sound of a siren. The ambulance was coming for John Linton. End of chapter 12